and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Vincent Mezzo is the Director of Education for Kettlebell Concepts in New York City and the Director of Fitness Education for NYSC. His passion for kettlebells and training grew out of his early training as a dancer and acrobat. Vincent has a master's degree in exercise physiology and fitness management from NYU. Vincent is the creator of the Flexibility and Corrective Exercise Specialist Certificate and the Focus on Flexibility and the Periodization of Sports Massage Workshops. As the Director of Education for Kettlebell Concepts, he has authored the content of several advanced kettlebell courses. His teaching is centered around the ideas of improved conditioning and helping people learn better, better body management to move better. He lives in Westchester, New York with his wife and twin sons, and I was fortunate enough to meet Vincent and learn from him as my kettlebell instructor over a decade ago. Vincent, what an honor to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Thanks very much, Casey. It's a pleasure to be here. Such 10 a, years ago. Yeah, oh, I wow. think so. Yeah, I think it was like 10 or 11 years ago. Your training absolutely blew me away and has stuck with me. It's something I use all the time. And you gave the very, very, very best cue for an exercise that I've ever heard. <laughs> and I've stolen it from you and I use it all the time. And it's when you are doing a kettlebell windmill. So you're holding a kettlebell in one hand and you tip laterally down on the side where the kettlebell is. The first thing you want to do, sassy hips. <laughs> there you go. Got to get sassy with the hips. Got to get sassy with the hips, man. That stuck with me and so I, well. I, pi- I have a character I picture whenever I do that also. Even though I grew up in the Northeast and in New York, I, I went to camp down South. And so I always imagine uh, a Southern girl getting sassy with her hips. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's a perfect cue. <laughs> it's perfect. I love it. Man, um, so it's so great to catch up. I would love to introduce our guests to kettlebells and training with kettlebells. It's such a fun, dynamic way to train. First, I want to hear your story um, and kind of, you know, dance and how you got involved with fitness and kettlebells to begin with. I also want to hear the history of the kettlebell itself because I think it's so fascinating. Absolutely. So I started off, as you said, as a dancer and a musician. I played in the club scene in New York City, uh, got a BFA in drama. And when I was studying theater, we were working with a very an experimental type of theater that came out of Poland and a guy named Jerzy Grotowski. And it was very much about the actor uh, using their body for everything. And so we did a lot of yoga and Tai Chi and all kinds of movements. And that, you know, I probably ended up at that particular studio because of my dance background. And while I was there, I got even more interested in acrobatics and gymnastics. So I started studying acrobatics at a place called Broadway Dance Center in around midtown manhattan and i did that for about 10 years and when i was studying acrobatics there was a woman in my class who was an athletic trainer a massage therapist and a personal trainer and one day she asked me hey i'm going to the gym you want to come and uh, lift weights and i was like what lift weights that's that's crazy talk <laughs> Uh, you know, because when I came up as a dancer, dancers didn't lift weights because everybody was under this erroneous impression that, oh, it makes you muscle bound, et cetera, et cetera. But 
I started going to the gym and I started lifting and my tumbling got better and I got more flexible and I was a getting more tricks and I wasn't as wrecked. I was recovering faster. So I started thinking, eh, you know, this is a really, really good way to make a living. I, I had been doing something else I learned in theater, which was carpentry. So, you know, when I was coming up in theater, I was an apprentice and I learned carpentry and electric stuff. And so I started doing renovations, but doing demo and carrying sheetrock up, five-story walk-ups was really killing me. So I thought, hey, this would be a really great way to make a living and be able to use my body and do things that are more healthy and help other people. And that's how my journey in fitness started. Now, when I started off in fitness, which is was in the early 90s, everything was still very Nautilus-based, very Cybex, Nautilus, pumping iron, bodybuilding. None of the gyms had Olympic platforms or turf areas or anything like that. So... It was a little weird because I, in a lot of ways, I felt restricted because of my dance background and because of being an acrobat. Everything was very cardinal plane, very slow, not dynamic, not explosive. It was kind of strange, but that's what fitness was doing back then. And because of that, I sort of shifted more towards Pilates-based work. Back then, we had to call it Pilates-based. So I was doing a lot of mat work, and I would get my clients up on their hands doing handstands and things like that. But there was something still very static about it. And then but in 2003, 2004, I got the opportunity to work with kettlebells. Kettlebell Concepts was actually looking for a place to do a workshop. I got them into the Swedish Institute and I got to take the workshop. And all of a sudden, all of those worlds came together. The, the dynamic dance nature, the external resistance of the kettlebell. And it was like, where have you been all my life? <laughs> Wow. So, and then, you know, in that workshop, I learned kettlebells were originally a counterbalance on weights in farmers' markets. So, because they have that handle, they could pick them up and put them on a scale in order to weigh grain or other things. In that movie, The Pianist, they're even using little kettlebells as counterweights to when people are trying to sell their silverware and stuff. So there was this shape of weight and there was probably some kind of vodka involved because the Russians decided this would be a good thing to start throwing around and exercising <laughs> with. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because in the U S when we, train our military, a lot of it, most of it is calisthenics, right? It's body weight stuff, and they don't use an external resistance that much. Whereas in Russia, they adopted the kettlebell, and a lot of the Russian military uses it. 
And it's great because not only do they get this body management control component, but they also get this external resistance component. And I think that's one of the things that really makes lifting with kettlebells or makes training with kettlebells so important is it's not just the calisthenics, yoga, Pilates, acrobatics type body control. It's also being able to manipulate this external resistance. So it combines those two worlds. Interesting. You're making me think of two different things. One, I, th I think the picture was taken like around the turn of the century when the kettlebells kind of had a, they kind of made their way into the fitness world, if I remember right. And I, mm -hmm. I remember a picture on the certification that was a group of people throwing the kettlebells up in the air. And the picture was taken while the kettlebells were suspended in the air, like, like a graduation almost where everybody throws their hats, but instead they're throwing cannonballs with handles on it. It couldn't have ended well. Yeah. Well, you know, that's another really fun aspect to kettlebells is yeah, there are the kettlebell competitions where you do jerk or snatch or long cycle for 10 minutes, but they also have juggling competitions. So, you know, throwing kettlebells and working with a partner throwing kettlebells is really juggling kettlebells is a, a whole other aspect to it that really leads into that circus thing, which again is, you know, right, right in my wheelhouse. I love that kind of stuff. Wow. Well, I won't be juggling kettlebells with you anytime soon. That's pretty high consequence. The other thing you made me remember talking about the Russian athletes, is, is it true? Like maybe was it like 1980 or something that the Russians swept all of the throwing events and they, they went and found out that they were just throwing kettlebells around? Do I, am I remembering that right? Right. That's absolutely right. So a couple things happened in the eighties, you know, we didn't go to that Olympics, yeah. but the Russian throwers in particular swept gold and not so much javelin, but all the other stuff that's more rotational, like discus and shot put, they swept gold. And then the NSCA sent a bunch of strength coaches over to Russia to find out, you know, to share training modalities and stuff. And what those strength coaches came back with is, yeah, these guys are doing a lot of the same stuff we're doing, but the main thing they're doing that we're not doing is training with kettlebells. And like the juggling, they used the kettlebells uh, to do a lot of rotational movements and they would actually throw them and stuff. So if you were fortunate enough to have a track and field coach or a wrestling coach who defected from the former Soviet Union, you might have been introduced to kettlebells, you know, back in the 80s. Uh, but in terms of fitness, they didn't really get a hold in fitness until that hard style dragon door type of kettlebell lifting started uh, in the early 2000s. Mm, interesting. So let's talk about the kettlebell itself. What makes a kettlebell unique and different? Because I think a lot of people would think like, okay, I could do barbell, I could do dumbbells, I could do a kettlebell. So what? Like, what's the difference? But there is a, a bunch of really distinct differences. Absolutely. So the, the main difference, and of course you see at the gym, if somebody isn't familiar with kettlebell exercises, then they'll just pick it up and curl it or press it. And absolutely you can do all those kinds of traditional exercises with a kettlebell. But the main thing about the kettlebell is the 
offset center of gravity. So you've got this U-shaped handle. So instead of the weight being balanced in your hand, like with a dumbbell, the center of mass or center of gravity of the weight is outside of your hand. And because of that handle and this offset center of gravity, you now got another lever. So when we talk about levers in fitness, we're talking about the joints of the body. So if you think about your shoulder joint, your elbow joint, your wrist joint, well, now you've got this handle that rotates in your palm. So that's yet another axis that you have to adapt to and deal with. And because of that other axis, it changes the length of the lever arm while you're actually moving. So you get these different moments of rotation. And those things definitely add something to the kettlebell that you don't get with a barbell, a dumbbell, a medicine ball, or any of these other types of modalities. Mm, that's very well explained. I remember learning from you too, that like a kettlebell looks like a lot of different things that you would encounter in day-to-day -day life, like a bag, a purse, a suitcase, something you have to pick up with a handle that has that same, you know, gravity underneath it, where you don't really come in contact with anything that looks like a barbell in day-to-day -day life. Yeah. And it, it brings up a you know, brings up that idea of transferability. You know, the, the gym shouldn't be like Vegas. We say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but I would hope that what happens in the gym transfers to your everyday life. And because the kettlebell is similar with this offset center of gravity, it's going to give you more experiences with lifting things, manipulating things that have an off center of gravity. And that hopefully then will transfer to lifting your book bag, your purse, a chair, anything that is unbalanced. Hmm. Is there a difference between the different types of kettlebells? Because I, as they're getting more popular, you start to see them in department stores and they have maybe a smaller handle or it's maybe only like three or five pounds or it's coated with rubber. Um, I've seen mm. ones that are adjustable, almost like the, the Bowflex kind of dumbbell system. Like what, are, what should people look for if they want to own their own kettlebell and purchase it themselves? I don't know if you or your listeners are old enough to remember Lenny and Squiggy uh, from the Laverne and Shirley show, but there was a funny bit that Lenny and Squiggy did because they also like had a band and uh, Squiggy wrote words to Lenny's instrumental. So you have an instrumental, it shouldn't have words, right? By definition, an instrumental doesn't have words. So why are you adding words to this <laughs> instrumental? Anyway, point being that the beauty of the kettlebell is that it's so simple. So once we start to add things to it, it, it convolutes it. it. It takes away from the simplicity and the efficiency or the elegance of the kettlebell. So for a long time, there are traditional kettlebells that had a little screw in the bottom where you could fill it up with sand or pennies or something like that to change the weight. 
And you know what, if you can only afford one or two kettlebells, then it absolutely makes sense that, yeah, let's make something so that the person can make it heavier and grow with it. But all those other bells and whistles, the plastic, the other ways to adjust it, they seem to just get in the way of doing a traditional appropriate kettlebell exercise. So for example, a lot of the adjustable kettlebells are plate loaded. So they have plates on them. But when you have these plates with the bumps and ridges of the plate, then it becomes very difficult to hold the kettlebell in an appropriate rack position because now the corners and the bumps of the plates are digging into your forearm, for example. So I, I'm not a purist. I'm not saying it has to be this kind of kettlebell, but at the same time, if it has too many bells and whistles, then it, it loses the point. The It gets watered down in a way. And when you look at the handle of the kettlebell, you know, that's evolved. They were originally the counterbalances on scales in the farmer market. So it was just a handle so you could pick it up and throw it on the scale. But then we started to want to put our hand through the handle so we could hold the kettlebell in the rack position. And that means that maybe the handle has to be a little bigger. There has to be a little more space between the handle and the kettlebell. So it needs to be comfortable. Some of the handles, for example, the handles you see on what we call a competition-style bell, they are very straight because they're basically made to be used with just one hand because in competition-style lifting, you don't put two hands on the kettlebell. Mm. The more fitness-oriented kettlebells, they have a more curved or U-shaped kind of handle, which allows you to more comfortably put two hands on the handle. So that difference in handle shape, it doesn't mean you can't put two hands on a straight handle or you can't put one hand on a curved handle, but that's sort of how those shapes evolved. Mm. Ultimately, especially when we have lighter kettlebells for somebody who's just starting off, what will often happen is that as the kettlebell gets smaller and lighter, the handle gets smaller and lighter to the point where you can barely fit all your fingers through the handle. <laughs> so if you're looking for a kettlebell in the eight to 10 pound range, because you're just starting out, you really need to look for a kettlebell that looks a little awkward. Like the handle looks bigger than it should for that bell. It's not really proportionate because the handle still needs to accommodate your hand, even though the, the weight, the bell itself is lighter. And that's the main thing you see when, you know, a, a weeder or Walmart tries to sell a kettlebell is they just miniaturize the whole thing as it gets lighter instead of realizing that you still need to hold this handle in the rack position with your wrist through it. And it still needs to lay comfortably on your forearm. And they've sort of forgotten that and figured, hey, let's sell this cool looking paperweight and hopefully <laughs> buy it they they totally look ridiculous and, and now that now that i'm not in the gym setting i don't see this as often as i did before um and i would never ever allow anybody to do this if they were working with me but i want to know what happens in your brain when you see somebody grab a kettlebell with a gloved hand you know 
it's it's a very interesting i mean to to answer that question which i think is a great really great question but it really brings up for me this whole idea of societal norms and you know do you want your hands to be smooth or you know what does it mean to have calloused hands and i think a lot of that comes into play when people come into the gym in terms of lifting kettlebells we're getting a lot of feedback from our sensory system when we use the kettlebell. And that comes from our proprioceptors, but it also comes from the tactile receptors in our hands. And if we put a glove on, then we're not going to get that same subconscious tactile input that ultimately is really important for helping us control the kettlebell. So that, I think, is what the main downside is to wearing gloves when you use a kettlebell. On the other hand, you know, it's it's good to have calluses. It's good to have strong hands that can do work. Uh, maybe some people don't agree with that because we should just be on our computers and, you know, not have the world affect us. But you know, that, that's where it gets into this idea of societal norms and stuff. Societal norms. I'm so glad you said that. You are absolutely right. It's like we can either make ourselves hard to the elements or we can just design this comfortable, you know, cushy life around us so that we never have to experience any kind of discomfort whatsoever. I don't want my hands to, you know have any kind of like calluses. I don't, I don't want to experience temperatures. I don't want to walk to the door to get food delivered from Grubhub. It's, it's, you're right. It, it is a bit ridiculous. And I, I love the idea of making ourselves more resilient so that we can experience tough things and get through them much better. Um, I'm curious to know, as we're addressing a kettlebell, we're kind of stepping up to it for the first time. What are some of the key positions and grips and, and things we need to be thinking about as far as like starting places for exercises? So most of the things that apply to exercise in general apply to the kettlebell. So hinging at the hips, not flexing your spine, for example, right? Keeping your shoulders back, not flexing your thoracic spine and your upper back forward. All of those general types of things. Breathing. Yes, please breathe just you know, for normal cellular function so all of it warming up all of those things apply to the kettlebell now with the kettlebell in general it depends a lot on what your ultimate goal is and it depends on where you're starting off so for example one thing i like about the kettlebell is working from the high hanging position. So most of the work we do in the level one and the level two kettlebell workshops for kettlebell concepts, we're using that high hanging position. Yeah, we have to pick the kettlebell up off of the floor to begin with, but after we've picked it up off of the floor, we're using a smaller range of motion when we do swings and pulls. We're not doing each pull like it's a full squat and going all the way from the floor to all the way up. 
but instead we're using this more power clean, power athletic ready position. And I think that's one of the things that people get a little confused about, especially in the beginning of the kettle of their kettlebell exercises, is they end up making the movements inefficient instead of figuring out how to make them efficient. So if I'm lifting a 70 pound kettlebell, then I'm probably going to do more of three quarters of a squat, maybe even a full squat because the kettlebell is heavy and it's pushing me down. But if I'm lifting a 35 pound kettlebell, then I'm using maybe a quarter squat to a half squat when I'm doing my pulls or my swings. I don't need to go down that low. And certainly in kettlebell competitions, you pick the kettlebell off the floor at the beginning and you don't put it down for 10 minutes. And if you were going all the way up and down, you wouldn't be able to do those snatches or those jerks for 10 minutes. So I think it's being in that range that's more like jumping rope is a, an analogy I like to use a lot. It, it can be more rhythmic and dynamic and you don't need, your goal is to make it efficient, not to make it inefficient. Hmm. Interesting. You mentioned the spine. Maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit about stabilization and mobilization because I hear these two terms thrown around all the time and I cringe a little bit when somebody says that we want our core to be really mobile. You know what I mean? Like, can you, can you explain the difference between stabilization and mobilization and then maybe like an example of, of an area or a joint that should be one or the other? Absolutely. So You know, with the spine, especially if we go back to the 1950s and, you know, they they did all these tests and they tried to look for, you know, what what are the things that may help us predict back pain in somebody or help us predict fitness? And one of those things was touching your toes right? And how flexible you are in the spine. And as we went on, there was a long time in the fitness industry and in the rehab industry where we were looking at, well, the back is getting hurt because it's not moving enough. And then we started to realize that the spine in particular should because of how the nerve come nerves come out between the different vertebrae because of how the discs are positioned between the vertebrae really there shouldn't be a lot of movement happening at the vertebrae what the vertebrae are supposed to do is they're supposed to be stable so that we can transfer force through them from the lower extremity to the upper extremity And so we very much switched our thinking in terms of, well, doing all of these cobras and scorpion and twisting type movements. That's probably stretching the ligaments and putting stress on the discs and the muscles and the joint structures. That's probably exacerbating these painful conditions. Whereas what we should really be doing is keeping the 
spine stable and letting the movement come from the hips and the shoulders. So as you know, in fitness, we have this idea of relative flexibility. The idea is if one area doesn't move enough, another area is going to move more. So if my hips don't move enough, then when I go to pick something up, I'm going to have to move more at my spine. And if I move more at my spine, then those small paraspinal muscles are more likely to get pulled. The ligaments are more likely to get stretched or sprained. And over time, those discs could herniate or become weakened. So we've really shifted our thinking a lot in terms of the spine itself. When we look at the body as a whole kinetic chain, if we start down at the bottom, the foot, the arches of the foot should be stable, but the ankle joint should be mobile. The knee should be stable. It shouldn't deviate inward or outward, valgus or varus. The hip should be mobile. The low back should be stable, whereas the thoracic spine should be mobile so we can expand the rib cage. The scapula should be stable. We hear a lot about scapular stability, but the shoulder should be mobile, the glenohumeral joint elbow stable, wrist mobile. So we can really go through the kinetic chain and we see that in order to move efficiently, we've got this alternating pattern of stability and mobility. So both are important, but it really depends on what the job of that specific joint is. That was a killer explanation. That was so good. I love that. I want to go back to kettlebell positions and talk about another really important one, which is the racked position. I see I see people do this, what, what I would consider incorrectly all the time. Can you talk about what the racked position with the kettlebell is and how it should be done? Sure. This, you know, this is, as you can imagine, also a pet peeve of mine. The getting back to that idea of the handle of the kettlebell and what we were talking about in terms of the handle, having that larger space between the bell and the handle allows us to keep our wrist straight. And that's really one of the huge benefits of using a kettlebell as opposed to a dumbbell or a barbell. If you've ever done Olympic lifting with a barbell, or you've ever even tried to do a front squat with a barbell, the range of motion at the wrist that that requires and the proportion of your forearm length to your humerus length or your arm to your forearm, your humerus to your radial radius and ulna, all of those things can really be limiting factors in how well and how efficiently you're going to be able to hold a bar barbell in that rack position. So the whole point then of the kettlebell in terms of comparison is that if you're going to clean, jerk, snatch a kettlebell, you don't have to have your wrist in that extended position. The wrist can stay straight. So when people go and pick up a kettlebell and they put the handle right in the center across their palm and then their wrist hyperextends, you, you're already missing the point. You're already missing the benefit of being able to keep your wrist straight. 
So getting that handle diagonally across the palm from the web of the thumb down towards the heel of the hand or the pisiform bone, keeping the wrist straight, having the kettlebell part on the bicep, part on the forearm, having the elbow in, the thumb by your sternum, all of those things make it efficient. You should keep your friends close and your kettlebells closer. Mm. When you're holding the kettlebell, it should be like you're holding a baby and you're resting it on your hip in that rack position. And I think that's another thing that has happened in the fitness industry along with this you know, shift from we're, we're not flexible enough, that's why we're getting hurt, to the spine needs to be stable. But there's also this idea of anatomically efficient posture. And people take those plumb lines and seeing the posters of the skeleton or the muscle chart. And okay, this is anatomically efficient posture where all the joints are balanced. And that's absolutely fine if you're not holding anything. But as soon as you're holding something, a baby, groceries, doing your gardening, carrying two by fours, whatever it is, holding weight, you've now got a combined center of gravity. So what was efficient and balanced when you weren't holding anything is no longer efficient and balanced because your center of gravity has changed because you're holding this other object. And I think sometimes people have this platonic ideal of, oh, this is how my posture should be, even though it's no longer efficient because they're holding something. So, you know, we talked about sassy hips. The other aspect of that is that kettlebell attitude. You know, when you're holding that kettlebell in the rack position, you want to be like the punk kid on the street leaning against the wall, smoking a cigarette, because that's the kettlebell attitude. And that's the efficient position for holding this extra weight right on your body like that. Man, I love that. <laughs> That's great. You mentioned, you know, the difference between barbell and the rack position with a kettlebell. And you're right, man. Like I, whenever I would try to do front squats, you, so imagine for the listener, you're resting the barbell on the front part of your shoulders. You have to get your hands up and underneath and your elbows up as high as possible. And I can never do it very well. And so we would do all these like really aggressive, like wrist mobility type drills to try to get more mobile in the wrist. And I always questioned whether that was the best thing to do versus a kettlebell. You have, imagine, imagine like, like what we call in bike fitting, we call it like handshake position where the wrist is coming straight out from the arm. You're fully supported, like directly down against gravity in a very strong and safe position. And unlike a barbell, when I'm putting my arm underneath a kettlebell, I can a kettlebell, I can articulate my my arm so that if that thing drops, it drops to the outside. Where if I'm pushing a barbell up and overhead, like if I fail that lift, that thing's coming straight down and there's no way to change the angle of your wrist. Absolutely. Mm, so interesting. When when do we know? when we should be doing overhead type lifts um, for a lot of people, they can be really limited in the shoulder. How, what's a good way to know when it's time to push the weight up and overhead? The, you know, I think with a, we use the idea of the specificity principle in training, right? The way you train is what you're going to get better at. So unless there's pain or a specific pathology, musculoskeletal pathology, you can lift overhead 
with a reasonable weight. So I'm not of the school that you have to meet X, Y, and Z criteria before you can lift overhead, but I am of the school saying that, you know, you need to know what the criteria are for an efficient overhead lift. And even if you're bicep is a little forward of your ear right now. You're not at exactly 180 degrees of flexion. You know, you're at 160 degrees of flexion. As long as you're really trying to bring that weight back to 180 degrees, that's how you're going to get better at it. The body behaves differently when it's loaded versus unloaded. So just because somebody doesn't have full range of motion at their shoulder when they're unloaded, when you do a lat flexibility test, for example, or a snow angel on the wall or something like that, doesn't mean that when you put a weight in their hand, they're not going to have that range of motion because the body is behaving differently, whether it's loaded or unloaded. So again, as long as there's not pain, I think it's reasonable to try to lift overhead uh, with a reasonable amount of weight and a reasonable set and rep scheme so that you don't develop an overuse injury. And with the goal of understanding what should that lockout position look like, what does full elevation of the upper extremity look like, and make sure that they're working towards that. That was one of the best coaching um, tools and cues that you gave me as well. I remember when I came to your certification, I had it in my head exactly the way the personal training manuals said that people needed to move. A squat is like this. It's not like that or any other way. It has to be done like this. These are the cues you're looking for. And with you, it was like, let people figure it out. Like everybody moves really differently and their foot position might be a little different and their knee position might be a little bit different as long as they're not getting hurt. Like that's okay. Let people learn and sort this out on their own because everybody's a little bit different. Our hip joints are totally different from another. Absolutely. And you know, that brings up a, a much bigger sort of question or topic, you know, which when we play sports, for example, if somebody golfs or if you watch basketball and you see all of these different players shoot free throws, I mean, the, the range, the, the amount of difference in the technique they use to shoot a free throw or to drive a golf ball we expect that, oh, hey, here's somebody who's seven feet tall. Look at how they shoot a free throw or look at how they swing a golf club. Here's somebody who's five foot six and really wide. Look at how they shoot or how they swing a golf club. We expect that there, there are going to be differences. But then when we come to training, all of a sudden it's everybody's squat should look the same. Everybody's deadlift should look the same despite the fact that they're dealing with different bodies. So is somebody's hip socket more forward facing or posteriorly facing deeper or shallower? Are they antiverted or retroverted? Um, you know, all of these different things, the ratio of their femur to their tibia, right? People used to say crazy things like, oh, your knees should never go forward of your toes when you squat. And it's like, well, but what if the length of my limbs isn't going to allow that to happen? 
So, and it gets back to exactly what we were saying about working with a barbell and holding a barbell in the rack position on your shoulders. You know, if your forearms are really long, you may never be a really good Olympic lifter. Doesn't mean that you can't do some Olympic weightlifting, but, you know, that position probably is never going to be comfortable for you because of how you're built. So we need to adapt those things for you. That's right. And that could be really regional too. I mean, I think about yoga coming from India, those bodies are are very different. And that's a, you know, practice that was used mostly in that region for a specific reason. And I don't think you see a lot of people from India doing all that great in weightlifting competitions. It's so, it's so different the way everybody is built. I, I do want to ask you about exercises that are particularly um, unique to kettlebells, things that you can really kind of only do with kettlebells. And, and let's highlight some of your favorites. So only do with kettlebells is, is a little difficult um, because of course, over time you start to think about, well, how could I do this with something else? And there was the York barbell company actually had something called a swing bell, uh, way back in the fifties. So, you know, the, when I think kettlebells, one of the main exercises I think of first is the kettlebell swing. So it's most efficiently done with a kettlebell. And could you hold a dumbbell and do it? Could you do it with a sandbag? Yeah, you could do it with other things, but definitely the kettlebell is the thing that made the swing the swing. So the swing is one, anything that you do in the rack position. So we talk about cleaning, but then there's also the kettlebell clean. So holding that kettlebell in the rack position is obviously something that's unique to the kettlebell. One thing I would give kettlebells kudos for is, you know, Steve Maxwell introduced things like the Turkish getup and the windmill and the side press to the kettlebell community. Those aren't traditionally kettlebell exercises. You can do them with a dumbbell or a barbell. You see all the old time strong men doing um, not Turkish getups, but windmills with barbells and, you know, getting pictures taken of themselves with their globe barbells and their tiger skin Tarzan kind of outfits. But, you know, those are things that are very easily done with the kettlebell. And certainly the kettlebell has made those exercises uh, popular again. But I would say the kettlebell swing, the kettlebell clean in terms of really traditional kettlebell exercises, and of course, the kettlebell pull. Right. The idea of doing rhythmic pulls with the kettlebell isn't really something you see people doing with dumbbells and certainly not with barbells. Mm. If I had to choose three exercises to only do for the rest of my life, kettlebell swings would absolutely be one of those things. So holding the kettlebell with both hands, kind of using your hips to throw it out in front of you, you want to kind of lean back just a little bit. Is that right? To kind of counterbalance the weight that's coming in front of you? Yeah, again, this gets into that counterbalancing and, you know, what is posture? It's you want the hips to go back so they flex and you want also the hips to extend at the top of the movement. So when the kettlebell is out in front of you, your hips should be forward of the neutral position like that keep on trucking patch that they used to have. 
So, you know, getting that full range back and forth motion is really important with the swing. And it's interesting, you know, people get all the joint goes both ways. The joint flexes and it extends. We shouldn't just favor one of those movements, right? We should have full range of motion in both those directions unless there's some specific reason not to. And it's the hip that's moving, not the spine that's moving. Again, the spine is stable. So just because your hips are coming forward into extension doesn't mean that your back is hyperextending. Yeah, that's right. Wow. And two mistakes I see really commonly. I don't know if they're mistakes. I'll, I'll leave it up to you. The first is when somebody is quote unquote swinging the kettlebell, but they're actually lifting the kettlebell so that the angle of the kettlebell is not in line with the arms and, and mm. they're lifting that weight without swinging it so that the kettlebell is always kind of away from you at the same angle of your arms. The other one I see a lot of that I, I don't know. I'm not too sure if this is a good idea or not, but swinging the kettlebell way up and like almost overhead. I see that a lot with CrossFit. What do you, what do you think of both of those things? Yeah. You know, it's, it has to do with efficiency and actually there's a video on our kettlebell concepts YouTube channel, which is a comparison of different swing styles. And I go a lot into what they call the American swing where they're going all the way up overhead and uh, it's not something that I do. If you want to bring the kettlebell overhead, you should do a snatch or a jerk, not a swing. Uh, and there are a number of biomechanical reasons for that. But the other thing that happened, this gets back to the dynamic nature of kettlebells, is people are so, A, conditioned to use machines slowly, be conditioned to use weights slowly to get time under tension, and C, afraid that if they move quickly or dynamically, they're going to get hurt, like that somehow got equated in their brain. And because of those three reasons, they don't use momentum. They've lost the ability or the realization that actually momentum is my friend. Gravity, momentum, I need to use these things to be efficient. So when you see somebody doing a front raise when they're doing a kettlebell swing, it, it's conditioning and they're kind of missing the point of sequential segmental summation and being able to efficiently sum the forces of all the joints in their body so that the small muscles of their shoulder don't have to do this front raise and lift the kettlebell because the momentum that they created from all those other joints, ankle, knee, hip, etc., is actually doing the work. And that's the benefit of training because doing the work that way, getting all the joints to add up to something that's bigger than the sum of their parts is the kind of thing that you take out of the gym with you. That's going to help you when you're playing with your kids, swinging them around, when you're gardening, if you have to carry cinder blocks, when you're closing a car door, et cetera, et cetera. It's that kind of efficiency that we want to work towards. 
I want to um, talk to you a little bit about program design. We definitely recommend that if you haven't done, you know, kettlebells in your life, if you're curious about them, make sure you hire somebody, even if it's just temporarily to help show you form, hire a trainer, make sure they're kettlebell certified, make sure they can show you how to do this safely so you don't get hurt. But outside of that, like what are some guiding principles if somebody wanted to create a workout program exclusively using kettlebells, what things should they be uh, looking out for? The, the main things apply. So the said principle, specific adaptation to increase demand, the fit principle, frequency, intensity, time, type, the recovery principle, all of these basic things apply. So you, you need to read something or you need to hire somebody who understands program design because they're your goals, there's your current capacity, there's your current ability in terms of what movement vocabulary you have, and all of those things need to come together into creating a program, whether it's with a dumbbell, a barbell, a kettlebell, a circuit of Cybex or Nautilus equipment. So, you know, you need to do some research to figure out how to create a plan that has variety, that has specificity, and that has progression, right? You you should not be just flopping around madly. There should be precision and efficiency to your movement. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. It, we take it for granted a little bit. Like if, if this is our world, you know, as trainers and instructors, you kind of forget like all the little things you pick up along the way. And, you know, over a lot of years, we learn certain skills. We might not be able to count to 12 very well, but we can definitely, you know, help you. We can do weight. <laughs> we can do weight. Exactly right. <laughs> um, I'm curious, you've talked about this a little bit before as well. What are, what are some things, um, to help people stay motivated, what are some key factors on that? Because I, I, a lot of people, you know, they start a workout program, they think it's going to, you know, do wonders for them, but they end up dropping off before they can even get any kind of results. You know, that's that's a very hard question, and it's a good question. And if I had the answer to that question, I'd be a billionaire. <laughs> but. <laughs> You know, some things that I've found, and this relates to diet and weight maintenance, whether it's weight loss or weight gain, you know, it really all comes down to psychology. You know, we all know that the broccoli is a better choice than the chocolate ice cream, but nine times out of 10, we're going to take the chocolate ice cream because it gives us that shot of dopamine and it gives us that pleasure immediately. And when it comes to exercise, it's, it's really about consistency. So I think the key is finding something that you're going to do or finding a way to get yourself to do the thing that you know you need to do. And I think that there's a, uh, this is the direction that I've been going in in my own thinking. I'm very enamored of and interested in this concept that for some reason I hadn't heard of until about a year or two ago, 
which is that movement is a prayer. Dance is a prayer in Native American cultures. So they have a rain dance, a ghost dance, all of these different dances, and those dances, that movement is a prayer. And I I really love that idea because there's something about moving our bodies. And if we can tap into the way moving our bodies affects our minds, then that's going to be the formula for long-term success. And I also find that when we do that with other people and we connect to the community and to nature, that also gives us a an advantage in terms of being consistent and keeping on with that exercise program. So that's a little bit of an esoteric answer. It's not, you know, the party line ACSM answer, but I think that that's really the way things are moving. So looking at community, looking at being outdoors and really thinking of movement as more than, oh, this is exercise in a gym that I have to do, but instead this is something that feeds my soul, stimulates my brain and the synapses, and that's what's going to help us be successful in the long run. That is beautiful. I love that answer. And that is so reflected. When I watch videos of you, you can see that. You can see that like pure intentionality of like, it's it's not just getting from A to B, but there's this whole in-between movement. You're getting, you're traveling and there's an intention going you know, from, from one move to the next. And, and you can really see that reflected in your work when you move. I absolutely love that. Since we haven't well, worked. That's, that's a huge compliment. Thank you. Oh, it's very apparent, man. I mean, I just was watching the video. Um, it was for a course you were doing with a, with a broomstick and just, just, uh-huh. it's like a dance. It looks like a prayer. Like it, it's really amazing. And, and you definitely have that, that knockdown. And it's, it's definitely something that I try to think of and bring in more into my life and the life of my client. But yeah, you, you definitely have nailed that for sure. Um, I'm curious, you know, we haven't really talked in, you know, 10 years besides a few Facebook messages and things here and there. I'm curious if you've changed your mind about anything in the last 10 years. Oh, I've changed my mind about everything in the last 10 years. <laughs> Good answer. Uh, it, um, you know, I, I change my mind every day about things and, I think that probably the the main thing that I've changed my mind about is that there's a lot more, and this is very personal, Casey, but I'll, I'll share this with you and your listeners. You know, I started off as a performer and an actor and an artist and a very creative person. And then I decided, you know, I I need to get a real job so that I can have kids and a house and a mortgage and that kind of stuff, because I also want that comfort in my life. And the way I did that was through fitness. You know, fitness became my real grown-up job. And for a long time, I thought those two things were separate. And it's just now, uh, 
for the last couple of years, but especially through the pandemic, that I really have begun to get back to that true joy of movement and that the reason I went into fitness is because it is an art, it is a prayer. There, there's something so fundamental and foundationally human about movement and exercise. And that that's where I'm at now. And that, that's been kind of a change. Maybe some people are already there. But when we get into the fitness industry and it's all about rankers and making money and KPIs and selling fitness and this workshop and that exercise and this project or product, this particular modality or technique, you know, that that sort of took me out of what's really fundamental about moving the body. I love and that. I'm glad to be back to that. I love that. That is so well said. Wow. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your certifications and what you guys offer? Absolutely. So at the moment, Kettlebell Concepts, we just created a an alliance, a strategic alliance partnership with New York Sports Club and their family of brands. So tomorrow I'm on 41st Street doing our level two kettlebells for metabolic and neurological adaptation. And then in October, we're at Boston Sports Club uh, and Washington Sports Club doing our level one kettlebell class certificate. And we're back in New York in November also doing a level one. So I know you're in Utah, you're out on the west side of the country, but um, if you're on the East Coast, we're going to be doing a lot here in terms of workshops. If you're not on the East Coast, we on the KBC website, kettlebellconcepts.com, we have a level one online foundations course, which is approved for CEUs from all the major exercise organizations. And if you already are more advanced with kettlebells or you're interested in the Indian clubs or the broomstick, the health wand stuff that you mentioned earlier, Casey, at uh, KIPS, Kinesiology Institute for Performance, I have two online courses there. One is kettlebells for corrective exercise or corrective strategies and techniques. And the other one is Indian clubs and wands. And both of those are approved for CEUs also. Awesome. I would highly encourage the listener, if you're at all interested in some of these concepts that we're talking about, definitely check out the website and check out one of these certifications. It, they really are very well done and very life-changing. Vincent, this has been an amazing conversation. It's been so great to reconnect. What is one simple tip you would like to leave with the listener from this conversation? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that a couple of different ways to say this. Uh, perfect is the enemy of good. Progress is perfection. And done is better than perfect. And those things come from art and my creative endeavors, but I think they're also very important in terms of health and fitness and living a healthful lifestyle. 
it's not about eating the perfect diet, doing the perfect exercise. It's about making progress. It's about moving in the right direction. It's always in flux and there isn't perfection. Making progress is perfection. Absolutely love that. Couldn't have said it better myself. Vincent Metzo, where do you want people to go to find you and find your work? Uh, you can find me on Facebook as Vincent Metzo. You can also contact me through kettlebellconcepts.com. I'm also on Instagram, but I would say kettlebellconcepts.com is probably the easiest way to find me for kettlebell-related stuff. Perfect. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Vincent Metzo, Director of Education for Kettlebell Concepts. Thank you so, so very much for everything that you've done. We're so grateful for your life's journey and your life's work, for sharing it with others, for teaching other instructors, including myself. I don't know if my clients would agree with me or not, but I would definitely say that kettlebells are such an amazing part of a, a great fitness routine and ritual. And I'm so grateful to have learned them and to have forced them on all of my clients over the years. Um, but thank you so very much for everything that you do. And thank you for taking the time to come to our show today. Thank you, Casey. Great to talk to you. Absolutely. It's been an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.